Who comes to mind? Samuel. Right, Samuel. Well, sort of Samuel. Yeah. He's he's next. Uh, Deborah, right? Yeah. But we're not going to do one woman tonight. We're going to do two. Uh, Deborah, and who else happens right with Deborah? Jael. Yeah, Jael, Jael, however you say it. So we'll we'll do both of them. But what we're going to do is give a quick overview. We'll see if my overview fits the definition of quick. Uh, but we'll look at the first three chapters of Judges quickly. Um, I won't read the first three chapters, but when we get to chapter four, that's where we'll we'll start our reading, and that is where Deborah comes onto the scene and uh, Jael at the end. Um, and if we have time, we'll look at some of the stuff in chapter five as well, uh, because that's where you have Deborah's song and some further comments on what happens in chapter four. Okay, so if you're looking at Judges chapter one. Um, my Bible opens up with this uh, heading. It says, Judah's Conquest of Canaan. So remembering where we are, Judges is after Joshua, obviously after the Exodus, so the people have been brought out and uh, brought out of Egypt, and everything that kind of happens after that is the process of them coming to take hold of the land that God was going to give them. So uh, Joshua, we know, was very faithful and a godly man in leading the people in that period. And the judges period is uh, a period of, of um, as, as the book says, a time when people did what was right in their own eyes, right? Where it's constant up and down and up and down. Uh, but at the beginning of Judges, you have Judah, all right? Now, before I even begin my comments on that, there's a significance to Judah going first because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? So he leads the way for the people of God. So at the beginning of Judges, you have Judah, and he seeks the help of Simeon. So those two uh, leaders there, they go in and they defeat the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Um, and there's an interesting name of a king in verse 5, Adonai or Adoni. Bezek, um, that literally means like uh, God King, uh, because maybe you've heard the term before, Adonai, uh, used to refer to God. That's one of the Hebrew names uh, for God that people often use, but it's obviously not uh, the true God, but that was his name, uh, that king in verse 5. And Judah and Simeon, they proceed to do something uh, very bizarre. At verse 6, we're told that uh, he flees, they pursue him, and they catch him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, why do they do that? Well, the very next verse tells us that it is because that is what he did to the people that he conquered. So God was repaying him, as it were, through Judah and Simeon. The very next section is the taking of Jerusalem, because remember, Jerusalem was not uh, part of the people of God's land, properly speaking, until they came into the promised land. It wasn't a city that existed for the people of God until they were to take this land that was promised. Um, then you begin to see uh, someone very familiar to you, starting at verse 12, Caleb. All right, you remember Caleb from previous in uh, the Old Testament, Joshua and Caleb, uh, but one thing I want you to draw note to is that Caleb is a Kenite, all right? He is a 
Kenite. Um, and let's see where that's mentioned. Uh, yeah, verse 16, the children of the Kenite. It's kind of uh, hinted at here, but it's, it's clear from this and later on that he is a Kenite. And uh, we'll see that that family comes up again and again throughout this section, with the culmination being Jael, who is a Kenite. Um, and what does he do? Well, in their taking of Jerusalem, he promises uh, that he would give his daughter to the man who does it. And he ends up giving his daughter Aksa, 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 however you say that, A-C-H-S-A-H, uh, gives her to Othniel. Now, Othniel is his nephew, okay? So Caleb's nephew takes the role of leading the way in taking Jerusalem and defeating this, this king that's mentioned there. In verse 16, as Miss Wanda hinted at already, uh, the children of the Kenite are mentioned, um, but it said Moses' father-in-law. So Jethro was a Kenite as well. All right. Um, other Canaanites are driven out by Judah, uh, and we're told in the text that he was able to drive out in verse 19 the inhabitants of the mountains, but not the inhabitants of the valley. And the reason he couldn't drive the people out that were of the valley was because they had iron chariots. All right. And then in verse 21, you begin... Uh, kind of a descent, as it were, where the failures of the people began to be mentioned. Because as you've seen thus far, it's all triumph, right? They're conquering, 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 conquering. But here at verse 21, we're told Benjamin fails to drive out the Jebusites. And then in verses 22 to 25, we have a note of the kindness of the house of Joseph. But then in verse 27, Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan are all listed to uh, basically fail to drive out the people. So you've got, uh, as far as quantity goes, a very few number of the houses of Israel that are actually succeeding in driving out those enemies. Uh, Joseph comes in again to help at verses 34 and 35 of chapter 1. But we're told a, uh, an interesting thing at verse 28. Uh, it says, it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. That means that they permitted the Canaanites that they did not defeat to continue to live there, but they were taxed. Right? If they wanted to stay, they were going to have to pay a tax, basically. You know who else does this? Today, Muslims. If Christians want to remain in Muslim lands... They can stay as long as they pay a tax in order to do so. All right, so that's chapter 1. Uh, chapter 2, uh, we're told that the Canaanites and others, they, do, they remain in the land, but God does something, and he, he tells them there in verse 2 of chapter 2, you shall make no league or covenant with the inhabitants of this land. So God is like, you know, you didn't do what I told you to do. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, blah, blah, blah. But he forbids them from making any covenants with them. And he says in verse 3, Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. Right? And this, this paves the way not just for the book of Judges, but for the entire Old Testament, right? where the people are constantly falling into idolatry, 
being bothered by the people that are still there, as we're seeing in 1 Samuel. The Philistines are a constant issue. The Philistines come up in Judges as well. Um, then a little bit further in chapter 2, we're reminded of the prosperity the people had under Joshua and the elders of his generation. It says uh, in verse 7, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua. So the people that were basically uh, with Joshua, that lived a little longer than him, those elders, they served the Lord faithfully during those days as well. But, verse 10, verse 10, says, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, so that previous generation, but there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Right? And again, this is paving the way for the rest of the book of Judges. And we're told in verse 11, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Uh, some say Baals. The Hebrew is actually Balim. Uh, anytime uh, you see a word in the Old Testament with I am on the end, that's plural. All right, that's how they wrote it in Hebrew. Sometimes it's transliterated directly into the English, and sometimes they just put an S on the end. So sometimes your Bible will just say Baals, B-A-A-L-S, but other times it'll say B-A-A-L-I-M. All right, so they're worshiping false gods. Obviously, the Lord is going to be provoked to anger. Verse 14 uh, starts, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. All right, he is not happy. But... In his mercy, verse 16, it begins with the word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. Now, let me tell you what these judges are. Judges are not kings, right? They don't technically have civil power. They are just like leaders, right? Leaders in the community, as it were, that... They're living in a time of, you know, just absolute chaos, and these various people are raised up from various places, from any number of backgrounds, uh, in order to serve as a judge. And it becomes apparent and important when Deborah comes into view that these people are not serving as magistrates, per se, but they are serving as influencers, uh, encouragers, and uh, leaders, right? Yes, yeah, so they did. Right, right. Yeah, it would be just almost random, yeah. right? Where God raised up someone who was uh, godly uh, in order to provide this redemption for the people. But we're told in chapter 2, verse 17, yet they would not hearken unto their judges. So they didn't listen to God and they didn't listen to, listen to their judges. And look at how it describes their apostasy, the old King James says, they went a-whoring after other gods, right? And there's a reason that that word is important to describe idolatry, because idolatry is spiritual infidelity, right? And that, that a lot of newer translations don't use that word, but it's important to see it like that. When the church goes and worships another god, it is as if a wife has gone and taken another husband, is the point. All right? And it uses that word. That is what apostasy is. That's kind of a word that we, we throw around a lot and we assume we know what it means, but 
apostasy is when you are in a relationship with the true and living God, but you turn from it to serve another God. You have apostatized, apostatized. Um, so apostasy, a whoring after other gods, and all those things. Now, it does seem to indicate that while each judge lived, that the people would sort of serve God, but as soon as they died, they would go back into idolatry and covenant breaking. All right. And then the end of chapter 2, the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he, into, he them into the hand of Joshua. So none was able to conquer them, and the Lord didn't act supernaturally to do it for them. All right, so chapter 3. So therefore, the Canaanites and others would remain in the land, and the Lord is said to leave those other nations in the land. That's an important note. He says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, these are the nations which the Lord left to prove or test or try Israel by them, even as many as Israel had not known uh, all the wars of Canaan. So the people didn't defeat the enemies that they were supposed to. They didn't even fight half of them. And then it's also said that the Lord chose to uh, allow them to remain. We know that God in his power could drive them out, right? He destroyed the Egyptians by opening up an ocean on them or a sea upon them. So he's definitely had the ability to do so, but because the people disobeyed and continued to go into idolatry, he did nothing. And uh, he did nothing to override their disobedience, as it were. But this proves the mercy of him raising up judges. Their disobedience, though, is furthered in verse 6. It says, they took their daughters to be their wives. Verse 5 tells you who that they is, the Canaanites, Hittites, and all those people that were left in the land. So they began to intermarry. All right? The dangers of intermarriage are explained in chapter 3, verse 7. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? Because their sons and daughters, their sons and uh, daughters uh, married those other uh, people's sons and daughters and served their gods, and they forgot the Lord their God and served Baal and the groves, these various places and gods that they would worship, right? So this is kind of like. Probably. That would have been the main distinction. Yeah. Uh, that would have been the most important distinction, but not the only one. They probably spoke the same language and everything, right? I mean, if you're intermarrying. Yeah. Um, maybe. Yeah. It's hard to say. We don't quite know what they all spoke. Um, it would have been a form of a Semitic language, um, Arabic, Hebrew, those kind of... We know the people of God were the only ones really to speak Hebrew. Um, but... One of the things that we don't often relate uh, when we read the Old Testament, and it's because uh, we live in America and there's so many different races in America, is that different races or peoples have different gods, right? And for them to marry into another race or another culture or another community was not just like a difference in color or something like that. It was a different god, Right? So that was what, it was twofold. Of course, the supreme thing is the other God, but that was also involved. All right. Does that make sense? All right. Yeah, it seems 
like it'd be a slightly different culture too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just just like today. Uh, I mean, it it would be similar to, um, like when you know some like a you know a normal white person raised in Christianity marries a. Uh, you know, a second or third generation Asian immigrant who is not a Christian, right? There's multiple things that are going on there, right? They're obviously going to have a different type of children that have ever existed in their family, but they're also, they're unequally yoked, right? So they're not going to have the same God. It would be different if they were both Christians. Right. Right. Yeah, and both of those things are implied because gods were tied up with peoples, right? God had a people in the Old Testament, right? And so especially then, it would have been, uh, the lines would have been much clearer. Now it's not as clear because we live in, you know, the melting pot, right? You know, there wasn't forced marriage. Right. There was, uh, there was always consent involved. We actually talked about this. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, there was, um, if you look at Numbers chapter 30, is where this is explained, especially like God required this of uh, the people, uh, where he would first ask the daughter if she was willing to marry the man, and then the dad had to say it was okay for her to marry the man. Right? So there was that uh, consent is always involved. I know that's a weird word today right? because of all the uh, social media and news language that gets thrown around, but it just means that they would agree to the marriages, um, even if their parents might have persuaded a little. That still happens sometimes. All right. Um, in chapter 3, there are three enemies that come into view. The Mesopotamians, right? We've heard of Mesopotamia, right? The Moabites. Remember Ruth was a Moabite? Uh, Moabites were the people who had the king Eglon, We'll talk about him in just a second. And then the Philistines, right? A judge is going to be raised up to rid the people of Israel of each of these. But something similar happens, or something familiar happens in verse 8 of chapter 3. It says, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Shushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Now, what have they, remember the book of Exodus, right? They've been delivered out of slavery. So we're being shown here that the people have descended back into a similar state that they were in prior to going into slavery in the Exodus, a similar spiritual condition, right? That they are that far away from the Lord. This happens over and over again in chapter 3. He sells them into slavery. A judge brings them out. Well, who's the first judge uh, to bring them out? None other than Othniel. Right? I remember that was Caleb's nephew that Caleb had given his daughter to marry, the one that had helped conquer Jerusalem. Othniel is the first judge that's mentioned, and he delivers them from the king of Mesopotamia. That's chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And there's 40 years of rest. Why not 39? Why not 41? Right? That biblical number, 40, that comes up all the time. All right. uh, slavery again comes after he dies. Uh, because they broke the covenant once more. They're enslaved to Eglon, who was the king of Moab. Remember the Moabites, Ruth. And Ehud, we're told, uh, in verse 15, he was a Benjamite. Remember who else was from Benjamin? Saul, right? Um, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, and we're told he was left-handed, right? 
And this is uh, just basically to say what we say about people who are left-handed today. They're a little bit different, right? People that write left-handed, they just are. Um, yeah, right? They do everything a little differently, but it's also, and, and because of that difference, not that there's anything wrong with it, but because of that difference, it's an added judgment, right? An added uh, thing to say that God is showing his power because he even used a left-handed judge to do this. Um, and what he does, if you remember the story of Ehud, the left-handed Benjamite, and Eglon, the king of Moab, Eglon is super fat. And Ehud tricks him and slides that blade that basically disappears into his fat because he's so big, and then he dies. Right? That's I've been looking for him coming with the right hand. Though. Right, exactly. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yep. That's it. And uh, <clears throat> so that gets us through verse twenty-six of chapter three, and then Ehud is followed by another. Uh, big-time judge who does something exceptional, named Shamgar. All right, we should bring that, bring back that biblical name. Like people like to use biblical names. Anybody want to name their kid Shamgar? He killed six hundred Philistines with an ox goad, like so the bone from an ox. He killed six hundred Philistines. All right. All right. So that's through chapter three. Now we're going to start reading at chapter four and meet Deborah and Jael. Yeah. You're welcome. Yep. All right, so chapter 4. Remember, uh, Shamgar has just uh, killed all those Philistines. That's the very last verse in chapter 3. Um, and he delivered Israel. All right? Chapter 4, verse 1, we're repeating the pattern. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. So they're delivered from uh, the Moabites. Uh, it says, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Right? So another people left in the land, God sells them into slavery to them, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera. So remember those two names, Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera was the leader of Jabin's army, okay? which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. The children of Israel... Again, another similarity to the book of uh, Exodus. The children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. All right? So remember those names. 20 years they're oppressed, basically enslaved, under uh, Jabin, the king of Canaan, whose army is led by Sisera. All right? And then we meet Deborah. Verse 4, And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. All right, so let's talk about Deborah for just a moment, just what we learn about her in verse 4. We learn her name. We learn her uh, office, as it were. She's a prophetess. And we learn that she's the wife of Lapidoth. Can I tell you what exactly would that look like for her to be a prophetess? I'm going to get to that. Yeah. 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 I'll get to it. Um, okay. So let me start with her name. Deborah means bee, like a bumblebee. Right? Uh, and because of that, it reflects her name. Matthew Henry says she answers her name uh, by her industry, 
her sagacity, which is her wisdom, and her great usefulness to the public because, you know, bees are very industrial, right? They're very wise and very smart creatures. She's also known by her sweetness to her friends, but her sharpness to her enemies, all right? And a prophetess it means um, a number of things. She's intimately acquainted with God, and she's devoted to the service of her people. Uh, she would have been in a very close communion with God in which God spoke to her, which we see uh, later on in these verses, verses 6 and 7. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, but it would also mean that her office as a prophet, she understood that she was not a prophet for the nations per se, but she was a prophet for her own people, right? That she served God by submitting to his communications and then communicating that to the people, all right? Uh, she had her origin, we might say, in God for the benefit of her society, and he would direct her to the help of others as conduits of his word. Because remember, they didn't have Bibles, right? They had these supernatural ways that God would speak to them through these various people. And her being a prophetess means that God is with them because he's still communicating his word through someone, and it also means that uh, she is serving this special role, and it means something uh, special for her to be a judge. So when she judges, right, we think of judge, we think of like a magistrate, right? Um, that's not what it means here. It's just someone who's a leader who helps them make decisions, and it also explains the way that she relates to the people in filling the role of judge, because other judges uh, were not prophets per se, right? They wouldn't have been in direct communication with the Lord. Like, we're not told that about Shamgar. We're not told that about Othniel. We're not told that about uh, Ehud. They just were very smart. Uh, they were very wise, uh, very strong, evidently, and crafty. Uh, but um, Deborah is a prophetess. There's another thing. Uh, the wife of Lapidoth. This is really cool, I think. There's a, a lot of debate because Lapidoth is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, and it's not altogether clear whether it's saying that she is a wife of Lapidoth, a woman of Lapidoth as a place, or a woman of Lapidoth as a word. Now, Lapidoth means, sometimes, lamps. Now, if that's the case... It could mean that her name means that she was a woman of light, right? Or a woman of illuminations or splendors, which would very much fit with her being a prophetess, right? Because she would have the light of the Lord with her in a special way. All right, so let's read a little bit further. It says, She dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So, it either means that her house was under a palm tree or that when she judged, she was under a palm tree and she was so uh, successful as a judge that the place literally becomes the palm of Deborah, the palm tree of Deborah. All right. Um, verse 6. The, yeah, in the verse 5, the children of Israel came up to her for judgment, so they would come to her under the palm tree. She sent and called Barak the son of Abinoam out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, 
and take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali. So uh, Barak is from the tribe of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. So he's supposed to, from these two tribes, draw 10,000 men. And I, this is God speaking through uh, Deborah, I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, a man named Sisera. Remember Sisera, the leader of the army of the king of Canaan, the king's name was Jabin, uh, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. So what's going on here? She's giving a prophetic message. She has a word from the Lord uh, in the true sense, and God is speaking through her to tell uh, Barak what to do, to go after this man, Sisera, who is the captain of Jabin's army, uh, the Canaanite armory. And then in verse 8, you get an interesting appeal, right? And this tells you, again, what the condition of the people uh, were like because Deborah, again, she's not, she's not a warrior. She's a prophetess, right? She wouldn't have been uh, a fighter, per se. Uh, she was a prophetess, but he is afraid uh, to go without her. He says, uh, Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she ultimately agrees to go. Verse 9, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to uh, Kadesh. So she agrees to go. Remember, she's going as a prophetess judge not as a queen. So what is this picture of, right? He wants this prophetess to go with her. What, what are we supposed to see in this image? I think we need to think of her office, but also the fact that she's a woman to really show what's going on here. As a woman, she is serving the role as a helper to Barak, just as Eve had been to Adam. She is a help meet for the occasion that Barak would need. Uh, he needed encouragement, and she was the one to give it. She doesn't assume his role, and she doesn't lead him. She assists him. She, as, it, as Eve does, comes alongside uh, Barak. Henry says about Deborah that as a prophetess, she was a visible symbol of the certainty of God's presence. So Barak is asking in a way, for the certainty of God's presence with him and his army to go to this battle. And by Deborah going with him, though she was the weaker vessel and had the stronger faith, it is the symbol of God's presence going with the people out to the battle. All right? uh, Matthew Henry also says that she shows a masculine courage in line with 1 Corinthians 16, 13, that, as the King James so famously says, uh, quit ye like men, right? Where the whole church in Corinth was called to act like men is what uh, modern translations say. Uh, but the reason the Bible says things like that is because courage is a virtue that is chiefly marked by men, though it is not exclusive to men, just as in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, gentleness is attributed to women. Paul says we were among you as nursing mothers, and he uses the word gentleness there, though gentleness is not exclusively a feminine virtue. Then she, uh, well, as we saw in verse 9, she, she does a, 
another prophetic message uh, where she says, the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And we have mentioned in, uh, let's see, down in verse 11. Let's read verse 10 as well so we can read all of chapter 4. We're told, Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went up with him. All right, so that full imagery uh, all going on here. And now Heber the Kenite. Remember we talked about Kenites, right? So here that name is mentioned again, that tribe, that or that family, as it were, it's not a tribe, uh, which was of the children of Hobab, which was evidently another name for Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, had served himself from the Kenites, severed himself from the Kenites, so he had left his people and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zaanim, which is by Kadesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Harasheth of the Gentiles to the river Kishon. Okay, so we've got this introduction of another Kenite, Heber. Um, but we're going to notice this uh, providence of God, and we'll come to it again in just a moment, uh, but the providence of God in using a man that had left his family, who was also a Kenite, just as Caleb was a Kenite, and uh, is going to be the place at which Sisera is going to be put to death. Right? And it just so happens that it's this man who is in the same line as Caleb, who is in the same line as Jethro, who uh, is pitching his tent in this place where he had severed himself from his family. All right, so um, let's see. Uh, Sisera uh, is informed that Barak has gone up to Mount Tabor. Now, there's some debate here. Did he go to Tabor because he was afraid? Probably, which is, would make sense of Deborah having to tell him to go in verse 14, which we'll see in a minute. But who is the they in verse 12? Some people uh, assume that those who tell Sisera that Barak was there were the actual Kenites themselves, because we're going to read that they were in a time of peace together with the Canaanites, uh, which is possible. Mm, or it's just ambiguous, and the people had just heard of it somehow. Uh, but Barak is going to finally move out to attack Sisera, and look at how this happens. Deborah serving that same role. It says, Deborah said unto Barak, verse 14, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hands. He's very prophetic. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. So if you're keeping count, uh, Barak has 10,000 men and Sisera has 900 chariots plus whoever was with him. Right? So probably not 10,000, but 900 chariots is a lot of chariots. Right? Uh, especially when you're talking about compared to simple foot soldiers. Um, it says, uh, verse, let's read through verse 17. It says, The Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Harosheth of the Gentiles, and all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor of Canaan 
and the house of Heber, the Kenite. The, the Kenite. Okay, so again, Deborah is the encouragement that Barak needs uh, to go out and perform his role. Uh, Henry, again, just kind of paraphrasing him there, uh, he, he uses this language that we often use when we, we joke around and say, uh, when we call a, a wife a man's better half, right? But basically the idea behind that is that the woman provides what the man lacks, right? And Deborah makes up for what is lacking in Barak, right? Or Barak, however you want to say his name. And the two things that Matthew Henry notes is that Deborah had the proper conduct, which means she knew what to do, but she also had the proper heart, she had courage, unlike Barak, and she is filling that role that uh, is meant to be uh, carried out by one who leads the armies of God. And we're told the Lord undoes the forces of Sisera and causes him to flee on foot. Everyone is killed except Sisera, and Barak is in pursuit, and this is where you begin to meet Jael. And remember the providence of this whole thing, how God is uh, working it all together. You've got Heber the Kenite, Jael's husband, who has left his people to go live in this place that just so happens to be the place that Sisera is going to end up to be killed by a Kenite. All right? So, um, let's see here. Yeah. Okay. So, let's read at verse 18. It says, And Jael went out to meet Sisera. Remember, Sisera is the leader of the armies of Canaan, whose king was Jabin, and said unto him, Turn in, my lord. Turn in to me and fear not. That's not uh, sexual, uh, just in case you're wondering. And when he had turned in unto her, into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. So she, she covered him up, making him comfortable. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. Again, he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee, and say, Is there any man here that thou shalt say, No. Okay, so she's drawing him in. There's some debate over uh, the bottle of milk, right? Whether it was just milk and he was so starved that he consumed so much and it made him sleepy, or whether it's some kind of uh, basically like a euphemism for a strong drink that would have put him under. Uh, very quickly. Um, so let's look at verse 21. Uh, then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary, and so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him. And said unto him, Come, and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. And when he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So, Jael does something that happens very often in the Old Testament, Roxanne and I were actually talking about this a few minutes ago. She deceived someone. It's not murder. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not 
I don't think that he would have been in the battle. If he was, he would have been fighting on the side of the Canaanites. Because in verse uh, 17, um, the Canaanites, so the Canaanites and the Israelites, the people of God, are at war. Technically, right, yeah. Well, so remember, the Kenites are from the line of Jethro and seems to be from the line of Caleb as well. So they would have been, um, through Jethro's daughter, brought into the people of God. All right? So he's a descendant of Moses' uh, yeah, Moses' wife. All right? Great, 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 great grandson or whatever. So he would have been uh, in league with the... Uh, the people of God, and the Kenites, um, I should have looked this up some more, but evidently they have a role in the covenant people, right? You see them later in Jeremiah. I, I was just reading that. Oh, yeah? They, they get a blessing from God forever. Yeah. Because they were the ones that did not cut their hair, and they stayed true despite what Judah and Israel had done. Hmm. There you go. She was saying that the Kenites in the book of Jeremiah are given a blessing basically because of their faithfulness to God, even though the majority of Israel and Judah had, had left them. Right. So when you have these different names, like you, you have to remember that you've got tribes, like you've only got 12 tribes, but then you've got all these different people that make up the tribes. All right. So the Kenites would have been a family that would have been integrated into uh, one of the tribes. I can't remember which one it is uh, per se. I should have done a little more looking into that. But they were involved in Israel. And for him to say that he was away from the Kenites, he would severed himself from the Kenites. It doesn't say why, but it probably wasn't because of something good. This would be probably uh, a communication of Jael's trust in God and uh, their being engrafted back into the people. Because though they were at peace with Canaan, she understood that they should be at war with Canaan. All right? They probably never met. She undid her husband's breach. Yeah. She what? Yeah, if her husband had breached the covenant with God, had broken God's covenant, she is undoing it. Right? Which is also an added element to uh, just this whole picture of God um, doing things differently as it were, right? Because normally you see, you know, the husband taking the lead on those things, but very occasionally. Do what now? No, there are some comments. There are some, yeah. yeah, there are some comments in chapter 5 about Jael we'll get to in just a second. Um, but let me get to some more imagery. Uh, Jael deceives Sisera, and this is righteous deception, which you have over and over again in the Old Testament. Abraham, um, uh, Jacob, um, Isaac, um, Rahab, right? They all lie for righteous ends. Um, but again, Rahab jumps out the, the, uh, off the page the most because she's another godly woman in a bizarre situation. But she drives a tent peg through his head. Do you remember in Genesis 3.15 where God said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent? 
all right? So you've got imagery here as well on that because she's a godly woman, evidently, right? That's why she's being presented this way. And then you'll see even more in chapter 5 how she's a godly woman. Uh, if you look at chapter 5, verse 26, uh, well, let's read verse 24 to 26 uh, really quick. Um, maybe 24 to 27 of chapter 5. It says, and tell me who this sounds like at the very beginning. Blessed above women, blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, be. Mary. Mary. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. He asked water. And she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer she smote Sisera and she smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet he bowed. He fell. He lay down. At her feet he bowed. He fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. Right. You can see that's definitely a song, right? How this it's got this cadence about it. So it doesn't say in chapter four that she chopped off his head, but in chapter five it does. Right? Did she cut it off? Yeah. All right. Remember David cuts off Goliath's head. Right? You've got very this repeated imagery of attacking the head of the enemy, which ultimately points to the Lord Jesus crushing the head of the serpent, the devil on the cross. Like yeah. Or yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He would have been out. And then they just broke out the song? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, how are they just singing that, like, together? You know? She's doing well, it maybe when she's they working with her sledgehammer. Yeah. Well, it says, it says, uh, at the beginning of chapter five, it says Deborah and Barak sang the song. Oh, well, there's probably oh. 10,000 soldiers as many as they all live mm-hmm. with them. Yep. And what you also have an additional image of here is after the Exodus. Moses and Miriam sing a song, right? Which is, this is a very similar event. It is a type of exodus where the people are being delivered from slavery, delivered from an enemy of God. And then the reason you have this man and woman imagery in both places is because God is saying that he has brought together his people and brought about a new creation. Because Miriam was it. Right. Exactly. So you have man and woman representing Adam and Eve in both situations. Right? So Deborah and Barak fill that role here. Moses and Miriam there. Um, and so on. Uh, Matthew, God, go ahead. God uses who he, he will. That's right. You know, if, if Barak wasn't going to do it, tell him everything. That's right. Yep. Yep. Um, Matthew Henry says about this, explaining, because we're not told that Jael is led by the Lord or anything like that, but it's, it's evident. He says, it was a divine power. That enabled her to do it and inspired her with a more than manly courage. What if her hand should shake and she should miss her blow? What if he should awake when she was attempting it? Or suppose some of his own attendants should follow him and surprise her in the face. How dearly would she and all hers be to made pay for it? Yet, obtaining help of God, she did it effectually. She'd have to be quick. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have to be ready. Yep. <laughs> Draw back real hard. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so, so they lived in tents. They were living in a tent, and it would have been a tent peg driven in the ground that she had probably used and helped drive into the ground before, right? So she would have known the hammer. She would have known the tent. She would have known how strong it was. She acted with a certain level of understanding and wisdom as well in, in carrying this out. Um, but what you have in verse 22 of chapter 4 is a confirmation 
of the prophecy that uh, Deborah had given. Remember back in verse 9, said, The Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Right? It's confirmed right here. And it ultimately leads to the defeat of Jabin and the Canaanites. These are two women used by the Lord to overthrow his and their enemies. They are enemies that have been God's tool of discipline and judgment. That's, that's one of the things that happens over and over again in the, the Old Testament. It's so hard to understand that God judges his people by sending them into slavery, by sending them into exile, and then he judges those people who were over them in slavery and their exile for mistreating his people, right? He does both. He ends their slavery, and he orchestrated it with Deborah, Jael, and to a lesser extent, Barak. Now, a little bit of explanation. Um, this is a, I would call it a double indictment um, on both God's people and on God's enemies, Right, so he's communicating, as it were, through these acts with both of them. First, to his people. Uh, two women are used instead of two men. Right? That's a judgment on the people of God. Uh, and you can look at Isaiah 3, verses 1 to 15, especially verse 12, uh, to prove that, where it shows that uh, even in Isaiah's day, when the leadership was corrupt, that it describes that children and women had become their leaders. And it was a an indication of upheaval in society. And there's a reason you only have one female judge, right? Because that's not the way that God normally uses women. Though it's not beyond him, as Ms. Wanda said, he can use anyone. Um, it's another uh, further indictment on, on God's people because uh, as would often be the case if Deborah or Jael would have assumed these roles, uh, people would have pointed at them and told them to back away, right? But they're not in sin for their actions, but because the weakness of Israel, especially their men, this rare event occurs and God blesses them. But it also amplifies God's kindness. For this judgment, slavery, is mixed with mercy, deliverance by judges, which he does over and over again. So how is it an indictment on God's, two, God's enemies? Well, they're defeated by two women. Women are not known for their physical strength or military prowess. If you look at chapter 9, verse 54 of Judges, um, this is uh, another Abimelech, similar to Ahimelech, but not the same guy. Uh, Abimelech, uh, he has um, previously in the chapter accomplished a great victory. And then here um, in chapter 9, verse 54, well, actually, let's go up to verse 52. It says, Abimelech came unto the tower and fought against it and went hard unto the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman cast a piece of a millstone upon Abimelech's head and all to break his skull. Then he called hastily unto the young man, his armor bearer, and said unto him, Draw thy sword and slay me, that men say not of me, a woman slew him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. Right, And this... Just like, it, I mean, today, if a woman beats a man in a fist fight, it's shameful, right? And the same thing is being said here, right? That when women are used to do these kinds of things, these out-of-the-ordinary, out-of-character things, yes, God can do it and God has done it, but it's meant to show something, 
right? That God is uh, mocking people when he does it. Um, let's see. And, and even in these passages, uh, Jael and Deborah, they both act very womanly, right? They don't take on the characteristics of men, right? We're not told that Deborah uh, goes out and leads Barak in battle just as she was with him, right? And even in Jael, right? She doesn't go into battle to find Sisera. She's waiting at home. And God brings him uh, to her presence. Um, this is a humiliation upon God's enemies, but it amplifies his power as greater than them and their gods. He's able to use anyone he wishes to do whatever he purposes to be done. Let me draw your attention to a couple of things in chapter 5. We don't have time to read uh, all of it because I don't want to keep you all night. Um, but in chapter 5... If you look at verse, uh, let me read just the first few verses. Uh, it says, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, saying, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves, that is, when they went to serve him in battle. Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princes. So they're singing to the nations. I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. The clouds also dropped. Sounds like the book of Psalms, doesn't it? The mountains melted from before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, the one who slew 600 Philistines. In the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied, and the travelers walked through byways. The inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel until that I, Deborah, arose, that I arose as a mother in Israel. Right? So Deborah is called a mother in Israel in verse 7. And then jump down uh, to verse 20. I know uh, we like weird verses, especially my wife. Um, we're told uh, that... Verse 19, the kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money. They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. Now, the only thing that I can assume here <clears throat> is that, um, like a lot of people speculate about ancient literature, that stars were often emblematic of angels. And for that reason, some people even say that stars are angels. Right? Sounds wild. But some, in the ancient world, uh, that was one of the common ways that they would speak of angels as stars. And then if you go and read, like at the end of the book of Daniel, where Daniel is praying... And Michael comes, and he tells him that he had to wage war in the heavenly places, basically, against another angel before he could get there. Um, so I would say here in verse 20, when it says the stars in their courses fought against Sisera, that this is communicating the fact that this was spiritual warfare, right? that the heavens and the earth were involved in Sisera, the leader of the army of Canaan, being brought down by Deborah, Jael, and Barak. Right. Pretty cool, huh? And uh, we already read verse 24 and verse 26, uh, where you have Jael, similar language spoken of her as is spoken of Mary. 
um, which kind of, I don't want to denigrate the place of Mary, God forbid, um, but people that, like Roman Catholics, like give her a weird place way above other women, right? Very similar praise was heaped upon Jael here, right? So um, it's possible that Mary was just uh, one woman in a line of godly women that Scripture often talks about. Uh, but speaking of women, look at how it talks about Sisera's mother in verse uh, 28 and following. The mother of Sisera looked out at a window and cried through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariots? Her wise ladies answered her, Yea, she returned, answered to herself, Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey? To every man a damsel or two, to Sisera a prey of diverse colors, a prey of diverse colors of needlework, of diverse colors of needlework on both sides, meet for the necks of them that take the spoil. They're mocking Sisera's mother and her wondering why he's not home yet. Right? Know, where do they get you know it's like you know you, you look at Mary's song and, and the way she writes that it, a young person today cannot write it mm-hmm. um, I don't know if any many people could write what Deborah said today sure yeah. I mean it's just yeah I mean it just proves the inspiration of scripture yeah, that, that God is the writer right? because I mean we kind of have the reaction like oh my word like how is that Christian? How is that kind? Or whatever, right? But this is the word of the Lord, right? And, and nothing he communicates is, is sinful or, or uh, ungodly, right? So uh, this, this plays along with the fact of what, of what God does over and over again. I've already said that he, he mocks his enemies in Scripture, and we see the prophets doing it too. Sometimes even mock the people of God because of their sin, right? So there's definitely a place for that in Christian speech or Christian rhetoric. Um, And then verse 31 says, So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might. Obviously, allegory to the Lord Jesus there, right? The sun, the sun. And the land had rest 40 years. So 40 appears again. Thanks to these two holy women of the Lord. All right, that's all I got. Questions? Mary. Don't know yet. I know who I'm going to do the last time. I'm not telling you. It'd be a surprise. <laughs> so, questions, comments, thoughts? Oh, yeah. Like, so I guess when I was earlier, I was talking about like, her details of what her life looked like then. Was it, oh, was it a big deal for people then to have a prophetess? Like, because she was a woman or just yeah, because? Like because she was a woman. No, I mean, those were, those are common. Um, you have them mentioned throughout Scripture, prophets, prophetesses. Uh, you even have... Um, Anna, I think is her name, in the beginning of Luke, where she was a prophetess. Um, How would they know, though, if one was like a true prophet? Is it basically they trusted them, and then as soon as they said something didn't happen, they would kill them? That's right. Yeah. Because their words prove true. 
Okay. Yeah. No, yeah, that's that's in the the mosaic code, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's their their Whether their word proved true or not. Yeah. <clears throat> but sometimes God gives them a false prophet. He did. You know, and he gives them false words and false prophets. Yeah. Yeah. And that that proves uh, also just how far away the people would be from God that they wouldn't care that it was a false prophet. They would want to listen to the yeah. false prophet, right? right. And they did during Jeremiah's time. Mm-hmm. He was a prophet of him, the false prophets of him. Yeah. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the study.